DEI is not the responsibility of one person. Yes. It is a collective, <laughs> right? It's an organization, and it's and the the DEI leader is organizing, leading, managing, keeping things on track, right? But it really is the full leadership team who is taking that responsibility and making sure that everyone underneath them is also being held accountable. You're listening to Media Unscripted, presented by FIP, the podcast that chats to the big names in media about their passions, their opinions, and their personal experiences in this challenging industry. This podcast is brought to you by Pressreader, the world's largest digital newsstand. With Pressreader, publishers reach diverse audiences and monetize their content in new ways. Bring your publications to every corner of the globe, including at sea and in the air. Join Pressreader today. Hello and welcome to the first of three podcast specials, bringing you highlights from FIP Congress 2022. It was the first in-person Congress for three years, and I think it's safe to say it was a massive success, with over 400 attendees. The location was incredible, so a big thank you to James Hughes' mother and father for raising him there, and for James to sharing his beautiful home with us. But it wasn't just about sunshine, sea and socialising. There were also 81 fantastic speakers from major corporations and exciting startups from all around the globe. Top of the agenda was diversity and inclusion, which is the focus of this podcast. But other themes that emerged was good old digital transformation, which is still making the headlines, as well as leadership and company culture and innovation. Yulia Boyle, FIP's first female chair for 100 years, gave an inspiring and exciting presentation on her plans for FIP's future and the changes she wants to make, which includes doubling the number of women on the board by 2024. For this podcast, I spoke to Yulia to find out more about the challenges she faces, making sure FIP is accountable for its promises in terms of diversity, and why diversity in media isn't just a moral imperative, it also makes good economic sense. I also caught up with the inspiring Enkiru Balon, who is the founder and creative director of the Africa Soft Power Project in Nigeria. Enkiru spoke about the African stereotypes that frustrate her, how Africa is a continent and not a country, and why we need to change the stories around the diverse people who live there. Finally, in this podcast, I speak to Tanya Isla, Director of Global Licensing at Netflix USA, and Erica Lovett, Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Cartier North America. Tanya and Erica told me what diversity means to them, what companies can do to achieve diversity, as well as battling their own biases. I loved speaking to these powerful, passionate and proactive women who are fighting for change. So let's hear what they have to say. Yulia, first of all, how's it going? Your first FIP Congress? Love it, love it. Um, A lot of interesting conversations, um, a lot of great speakers on the topics that our members are very interested in from digital direct to consumer engagement, to first party data, to uh, news adjacent content that we all are trying to come up with to engage broad and deeper with our audiences. So very, very uh, successful, I think, in terms of, well, we have 400 people here 
yeah. around the campus. And I think it's a victory that we all made it here in person, despite a few people dropping out because of obvious reasons. Uh, I, I think we have a Congress that is as large as we had in Las Vegas, which was almost three years ago. What, for you, are the key themes coming out of Congress 2022? Uh, definitely um, diversity, equity and inclusion yeah. has been top of mind for me uh, as my agenda for the next two years. And I am seeing a lot of positive feedback after my presentation, opening the Congress, uh, but also genuine and deliberate attempt of the organizations to improve uh leadership in their organizations by attracting uh, more diverse experts. And when we talk about diversity, of course, we talk about different dimensions of diversity, be it um, gender, mm -hmm. but also age. Uh, there yeah. are so many experts, in, especially in the fields um, like NFTs and Web3 and Metaverse, where some of our leaders are just don't have the same skills. We have to look at people yeah. who are much, much younger than we are and engage them at, a, at, at much higher levels than we have them in the organization because most of the top uh, leaders in large media companies are still older. I mean, it's, it's hard not to notice that when you look around the room that it is still largely male. And I know in your opening speech you talked about the changes you want to make to the board. So... Can you tell me again, in terms of the female-male split, what you're hoping yeah. to achieve? Yeah. So currently, we have um, asymmetrical ratio of um, male versus female. We have 78% uh, male uh, board members and only 22% uh, women. So by uh, 2024, I will double the number of female representatives on the board. And this is a very doable target. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, James and I, uh, just during the Congress, uh, already have three more yeses in terms of joining our board. Can you tell us, are you allowed to tell us who they are? Not yet, okay. because they're the first time they will participate in the board meeting um, today, okay. and we will officially make that uh, known, uh, and we, I'm happy to talk to you after that uh, as well. So uh, it's a doable target. Uh, it's something that uh, we will just have to achieve parity, just like we already have seen some great results from um, signing up to BBC's uh, DNI tracker, 50-50 DNI tracker, and we already saw increase in our women uh, writers and women being the subject matter of our yeah. stories. Yeah. In this, and because we're deliberately tracking that, I think the same thing is possible. It's it's a math. It's it's a little bit uh, of a mathematical approach, perhaps, but yeah. it's also a deliberate approach. And if we don't take it, nothing will change. No, and I think that. I was funny, I was speaking to Miranda from the BBC yesterday mm -hmm. about this, and I love the fact that it's a mathematical mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a lot of lip service to diversity, right? People talk about diversity but do nothing about it. And what you do is you can hold people accountable because if they're saying, oh, yeah, 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 we, you know, oh, we're so yeah. pro diversity, yeah. we're so pro yeah. women, you actually look at the culture and it's not happening. And this mm -hmm. is a very clear way to literally look at the numbers. And you can say, well, but you're not because Absolutely. there's only 20, Absolutely. on the fit board, there's 22% yeah. women. You, so yeah. it's not 50-50 mm -hmm. and it's really mm -hmm. easy to address. And I think it's, I think 
change has to actually start happening rather than talking about change. I agree. I agree. And it's um, we have to be accountable. And I think one of the conditions uh, for me to to have accepted uh, the nomination of the board and James uh, James's uh, proposal to be the chair for the next two years uh, was uh, you know to be able to make that change and uh, DNI was uh, a part of my um, agenda and yeah. I will definitely make sure that I'm accountable for that. What would you say to people that think it's just about ticking boxes? Well, I think, um, as we know, I mentioned that a little bit in my presentation, is that it's not because there is economic benefit to companies in engaging uh, with diverse consumer. For example, we did um, research re recently for National Geographic that showed that um, Latin American, uh, U.S. Hispanic population and African American um, demographic does not engage with National Geographic as much because they don't see uh, in some of our content the relevance to them. Yeah. Uh, and they're not represented by yeah, They're not represented in a way they, they would like because, yeah. for example, we noted from our research that African-American consumer would like to engage with us in travel experiences as opposed to the main National Geographic magazine. So we need to make the pitch and approach uh, that consumer with an appropriate and relevant offer because they will engage with us. We're just not talking to them about things that interest them. Therefore, I do firmly believe that this is there's economic opportunity for us to bring in diverse consumer who's willing to pay. They just want us to give them what they want and how they want to relate to a brand like National Geographic. Mm. And so I, I think it's not ticking a box. Uh, I, I do believe that it's a moral uh, imperative, first of all, yeah. because uh, the world is diverse and uh, you can, uh, and there's just so much innovation coming from every part of the world. And um, we are leaving a lot of money on the table because yeah. we are not leveraging that innovation and a little bit talking amongst each other. You know, the big players in North America, big players in Western Europe, we are kind of talking amongst each other as opposed to bringing in uh, some of the greatest innovators that are not coming from those geographies. Yeah. So besides moral imperative, I do believe there is economic imperative, and that's why I don't think it's ticking box. No. It's There's revenue there. It's about embracing opportunities, isn't yeah. it? And I think what we're seeing increasingly is one thing we talked about with Web3 is how we're seeing um, going from the sort of organizational um, media content to individual content. And those individuals who are creating content are so diverse that if, if media associations don't wake up to this, they're just going to mm -hmm. lose out. They're not going to yeah. survive. Yeah. I think yeah. in order to survive, you have to diversify your content because you have to engage with this whole new audience. And mm -hmm. it's about creating communities rather than audiences. It's a whole mind shift. And I think... What's great is I do believe we're seeing change. I think we've still got a long way to go. We had Inkuro speaking about the Soft Power African project, and she was again saying it's about changing the stories, isn't it? And that is, that's what the media does. We tell stories. Yeah, yeah. So we have got such an opportunity to not, as you say, for morally, but also for growth, right? It's like, why wouldn't you do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is why I think... Uh, we need to have more storytellers here at FIP that um, kind of uh, safeguard us from the danger of a single story. 
and Kiro yeah. talked about uh, my favorite author, Chimamanda Ngozi Adigi, who also is Nigerian. And that's what she said. She said, well, uh, the Western uh, perception of Africa is completely distorted because yeah. uh, Lagos is uh, New York on steroids. There's so much creativity yeah. Yeah. and development and so many other parts of Africa that are, um, you know, more technologically savvy and have so much we can learn from because they went, they're digital first as yeah. opposed to yeah. many of the other places that we are coming from. And to sort of ignore that or uh, deliberately suppress that in some cases, this is just um, not um, wise. No, and obviously there's a slight uncomfortable element that we're two white women here talk yes. talking yes. about this kind of diversity. Yeah. And I am going to be speaking with Inkuru later, getting her perspective. And in terms of for the board, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, we're going to see a broader ethnicity on the board as well, right? Yes. Because we can't be addressing these issues if it's, if it's still... Yeah. You know, middle-class white women on the board, that yeah. also isn't helping. Absolutely. I think allyship is important. Being an ally is important because in my own organization, I observed that not a lot of women and men in a position of power are doing anything about promoting our uh, talent from diverse uh, ethnic backgrounds or racial backgrounds or other um, diversity. We have neurodiversity, we have LGBTQI+. Yeah, yeah. There are no people in power, in leadership position that come from these somewhat marginalized yeah. uh, groups. And I initially felt a little uncomfortable being a white woman, although from very mixed heritage, I'm part yes. Armenian, part Jewish, but I'm still a white woman and I understand that I'm privileged in that way because people see me as a white person. Uh, but then I thought, you know what, I, I do genuinely, I really believe in diversity as a moral imperative and as economic uh, yeah. benefit to media companies and I'm going to go for it. And I'm on two uh, diversity and inclusion, um, equity and inclusion committees within Disney and National Geographic. And I also was empowered by some of my female colleagues of color yeah. uh, to, to do this because I, I am in a position of power in the organization and I can affect the change. Yeah. And I feel yeah. that uh, this is important. So as I mentioned yesterday also that um, we have to start somewhere and uh, gender diversity is just one aspect of sure. our accountability to our members. Um, we are simultaneously, of course, ensuring that we increase uh, representation on the board and put in a position of power in FIB people of different ethnicities, different mm -hmm. um, race, as well as LGBTQI+, yeah. and disability, and other areas that are not represented sure. right now. So. All of that uh, will be tracked and accounted for, and we'll be reporting on this uh, next year and within the two years of my tenureship. Fantastic. It's, uh, two years isn't enough. Yeah. No, not enough. <laughs> it will be a, it, a beginning, it, but it's totally. something, and, and Kira also told about, uh, talked about being deliberate, right? When, once you set a goal, I think, yeah. at least we have a, a, a flag post right now. Yeah, I think it's fantastic, and uh, yeah, I've... I, you really bring such a positive influence to FIP, so we're all so glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you.
Next up is Nkiru Balong, who is the founder and creative director of the Africa Soft Power Project in Nigeria. Nkiru, thank you so much for talking to me. Can you, um, in the presentation, you said what your name means. Can you remind me what it is? It means um, the future is brighter. Nkiruka, the future is brighter wow. than the past. I love that. It's beautiful. And I was saying before about nominative determinism, which means that, yeah, it literally means name-driven outcome. So I feel like what an apt name for someone you are trying to create a brighter future. So it's really, really lovely. Fantastic. I'm, I'm honestly, I, I, I think so too. Actually, every college essay I wrote was actually based on my name. I'm like, oh, the future is better. The future. So I mean, like, yeah, I, I, I hope so. Your parents had high hopes for you. It also made me laugh. You said that you had to hustle to get <laughs> to fight for your place at Congress. How does it feel to be here? I mean, it feels great. Um, I, I mean, when I when I said I had to hustle, I'm I've been hustling like for the past twenty years, fifteen years maybe. Like you know, I, li I live in Nigeria, so I'm on the continent, so everything is like doubly hard or triply hard. And so the amount of work we have to do, um, like if I did half of what I do back home here, I'd be like you know, but we just don't get the credit for all of those things. So the hustle is real. Are you talking the hustle because of? Nigeria as a country or just being a woman of colour? I'm talking about being a woman of colour, being a woman of colour, but being of colour, it doesn't matter on the continent because everybody's the same colour, right? Yeah, right yeah. Well, being a woman, the hustle is real for being a woman on the continent, so wow. that's one. Um, but that's the same everywhere else. I don't want to say things are worse for us. It's like Things are not great for women everywhere. Things are getting better. So the hustle is real, but then the hustle to be at AmFIP, I didn't have to hustle, but like all the work I've done over the past, um, you know, ten years is how I got here. Yeah. But then we, you as a woman, you know, we work harder than. Yeah, yeah. End of. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, you also spoke about you know, breaking down stereotypes. How do you feel we can break down stereotypes? Whether you're talking about gender or color, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic. How do you think we can break down these stereotypes? I feel like we have to be really deliberate. And I have to say, so one of the things I don't know what to do about is, and I think I talked about in my, um, in my presentation about the, the bin with the plastic, where it says pet bottles, um, donate your pet bottles here. At the Amsterdam Yeah, um, donate your pet bottles here for Africans to have clean water. That really bugs the shit. Sorry, this is no, I can't swear. Yeah, you can. That really bugs me. And I wish I could go to, if I had time, I'd go to Amsterdam and do something about it. I'd sort of like say, this is not how I want Africa to be represented. And so if someone would do that, that's deliberate action. It's like immediate action will see immediate results. Yes. So being deliberate is really important. Yeah, I can totally get that. And also one of the things you said before, Africa isn't a country, right? It's not. There's 54 countries. Yeah, it's kind of like saying Europe. Yeah. You know, it's like, how different is someone from Ukraine's experience to my experience? I'm from England. T totally. You know? You don't, yeah, totally. It's just the only thing we share in colours might be white. Yeah. It's quite remarkable. Um, and it's just those tiny, not tiny, sorry, they're huge, but it's tiny things that create a huge impact, right? 100%. Which is Which is an ignorance about the fact that Africa's a continent, which is an ignorance about the fact that people on that continent aren't drinking healthy water. Um, it's just one act of goodwill has got it so wrong. And then it sends out all sorts of terrible messages. 
where do you begin? Um, so you also talked about Africa soft power. Can you tell me what does Africa soft power mean to you? So Africa soft power is something we started during COVID. So we, the long form is the Africa soft power project. And I think I was talking about it in my presentation when I talked about you know America, America's biggest superpower. It's actually soft power. I talked about growing up um, in Nigeria, watching MTV Base mm -hmm. and watching all the Hollywood movies. And you remember how always American soldiers saved the whole world. And I actually had the, the dream of being American. I'm like, well, why am I not? American like I need to be American and so everything I wanted to do was American in terms of my interpretation of the world and that's because of what I saw on TV and yeah. what I saw in you know when I listened to music was all American mm -hmm. and so that's American soft power and that's what we haven't had as Africans where we haven't told our stories and then the stories that are told about us are not stories that are positive so mm -hmm. again the pet you know donate bottles yeah. for clean water in Africa like I'm African and I drink clean water every day yeah, and what are the aims of your project? What do you hope to achieve? So one is the soft power thing. So one of the things that we're saying like it's a call to action is a global media campaign, which we sort of like want help with. And so imagine if every May, we call it Africa Month, and that means that everybody's putting out positive stories, deliberate stories about Africa, about African thought leadership, about African tourism, about African trade, about African technology, those sort of things, fashion, beauty, all of the stuff that's great positive storytelling. If everyone did that, like, you know, um, at the same time, over a period of maybe a year, maybe 18 months, you then immediately start seeing stories about Africa changing and sort of like people's interpretation of Africa beginning to change. Yeah, because it's about storytelling, isn't it, as you said? And you're saying it's okay to have negative stories because, as you say, in London, aspects of London, there's not safe, there's crime, etc. right? It's okay to talk about that, but then there's so much positive association with being a Londoner, being British. So how can the media help with these positive I mean, exactly, exactly the point you're making is in like the balance in storytelling. I mean, there's amazing stuff about, you know, like, I, I love London. I mean, I, I you know, I, I spent some years in London. I love it. But I know where not to go to in yeah. London. You know, yeah. I know when to, you know, be quiet. I know when to, same as New York. I know mm -hmm. when to not look people in the eyes. It's the same everywhere in the world. Yeah. Africa is the same. You know yeah. where to go and where not to go to. You know where to party and where. You know we cry but we laugh. You know there's great things happening on yeah. the continent. Yes, there's poverty as well, but there's poverty everywhere. Yeah. So it's really important that we have that balance in storytelling, and that's where I think there has to be responsibility, media responsibility. So what I see in all the Economist or the Financial Times, which I'm very proud to see that some of them were here today, it's sort of like you know like having that thinking. When you're deliberate, like think about it. When there's a story about the continent, if it's a bad story, of course you should tell it. But always look at the balance and like, how can I tell this? If my kids were serial killers, which you know things happen, right? So when you're talking about that yeah. kid, how do you tell that story where you don't completely dehumanize them, even though they've done bad things? It's just thinking like that. That's what I think. I think it's also about seeking out positive yeah. stories, yeah. which people are lazy and they don't, right? And I don't know if you know about the BBC diversity campaign. It's called 50 50. 50 I know about it. Fantastic, mm -hmm. right? And what they're saying is, is they say they have to act actively seek out women for a story. So they'll go to a company and they say, well, we're doing a, a story on energy. What women have you got to speak about it? If they say, we haven't got any women, they say, well, sorry, we don't want to speak to you. And it's not, it's not just about finding the female voices. It's about finding stories about women, right? And that's what has to happen as well with for people of color, isn't it? It's one of, one of the things that I got told by a big um, media org, I won't name because they were here. It's like, <laughs> oh, we don't have enough staff. And 
that's just incredible. Like, what, what do you mean they haven't got enough staff of color? To tell, no, to tell stories on the continent. I'm like, oh, we asked them to come and cover Africa's South Park, and they're like, oh, there's so many other things happening. We don't have enough staffing. And that just, to me, is like, but you would cover it in the UK, you'd cover it in America. Yeah. So what makes it uncoverable here? Because it's not like a sexy, or when I say it's not a story about how we're all dying of hunger. You remember how when COVID, I don't know if you remember, but when COVID started, like really literally on CNN, I literally had to turn up the news. We were going to all die from COVID and Africa was going to be the worst hit continent. As if there was like glee to that, you know, like mm. it felt like, oh, Africa, finally, they're going to all be decimated. Nothing happened to us. Wow. We, we, were, we were fine. But yeah. imagine if that's a story that you hear about yourself every day. You start believing in yourself. Yeah. And also really importantly is it's not just about doing it for moral reasons, it's for doing it for economic reasons, right? And you said that by, 2020, by 2050, one in four of the population are going to be African. So to ignore that demographic, it doesn't make good business sense, right? It doesn't make sense at all, as in like one in four of us is going to be African, we're going to be, we're young, we're dynamic, we're vibrant. And so why not invest now? Why not think about Africa in the positive way now? I mean, there's a lot of things like, you know, we sort of like, we've been doing this, we, you know, culture, like music, we've been behind all of these things. We just need to start getting the credit for it. Yeah, yeah. And another thing I thought was interesting was that um, Africa's always been mobile first. How is that, or how does it shape content there? I mean, it's so mobile. So some of the things that I do very easily in Nigeria, I, I remember when I moved to the States and I couldn't do them, like mobile banking. I'm like, this is like, what is going on? This is like antique. You guys are behind. So the things are not natural to us. Like, you know, if I want to get credit on my phone, I just dial star 737, star whatever, if it's 5,000, whatever. So like if it's a dollar or $5, I just log in my yeah, phone and I yeah. get it, which it's only just starting to happen, you know, in Europe and in the US. So for me, it's like, I don't even get how, you know, like sometimes I feel like the world is behind some of the things we're doing, yeah. but we don't get the credit for it. I remember writing something in a, um, a book around Me Too, and I remember that um, our, the president's wife, um, um, her name is Aisha, Aisha, um, Aisha um, who's married to our president, and she sort of like publicly um, uh, um, spoken out against him for doing something. If it been Hillary or Michelle or somebody here, they would have made the cover of time for publicly saying to the whole world that her husband was like, shit, I, can I, I can't swear, I'm sorry again, I'm swearing again, yeah. So like for publicly saying that, but nobody even noticed. But this is a Muslim woman who said, listen, my husband's full of crap, you know? And yeah, those kinds yeah, of things yeah. in terms of how we tell our stories and how we celebrate the things that we do is what we really sort of like, want to sort of like push, push back against. And talking of, of women, you said that, 70% of women in Africa control spending. And that's a very large demographic again. So how do you think publish, publishers should be taking advantage of that? I mean, it's not just African women, to be fair. It's like literally women everywhere. Seven, we can, whether directly or indirectly, we control consumer spending. Yeah. And so when it comes to African women, um, it's the same thing. We have the same wants and the same needs that women have everywhere else. We want to be safe. We want to be, you know, want to sort of feed our kids. We want to have, like, um, uh, you know, work. And so the same needs. So think about how you would treat women anywhere in the world. This is how African women want to be treated as well. And so we do, like, so fashion is big for us. Um, beauty is big for us. There's all the things that you think that, because the world thinks of us as poor, 
They don't think that we have all of these things, all the regular needs that regular women have. And so that's just the changing in the mindset. Yeah. And then re recognizing that, look, I'm wearing um, long braids right now. So hair is a big deal for African yeah. women. When businesses start taking that seriously, again, remember 50% of the population are black women on the continent. So 50% of 1.2 billion people are women. Yeah. So think about that. Yeah. So are there magazines that you think are getting it right? Not, not magazines that are specifically made by and for people of color, but are there mainstream titles that you think are doing a good job? I, you know, I've always liked, so on the continent, I'll talk about Bella Niger. Bella Niger is a, uh, a Nigerian brand, okay. but they're so big. They're big, they're red. I mean, this is like, a, for me, I'm like, you guys don't know Bella Niger. They're red, not just on the continent, but they're red across the diaspora. So whether it's Brazil or the Caribbean or the USA, that mag it's a it's a lifestyle magazine. They're sure. they're not they're only digital. They're not um they don't have physical copies, print, yeah. but they're major. They're so so they're getting it right. And there's a lot of African magazines or African platforms that are like that. But in terms of inter international platforms, I mean maybe in terms of I haven't been reading stuff, but I I do like what Hearst does. It's like you know you know what yeah. to expect when you open housekeeping. It's sort of like you know exactly that you know you know it's sort of like you're supposed to escape. I don't want to be hunted by news of you know, death and horrible stuff all yeah. the time. So there yeah. are magazines that are getting, getting things right from that angle. And you spoke before about um, Africa Month in May. What can the media do? You said you need support for that, right? What can the media do? They're listening, hopefully. What can they do? What is your, what's your call to action to the media to help with, with Africa I Month? would say um, partner with us in May. So what we're trying to do is like think about Davos in terms of the convening around um, thought leadership. So sessions and music and film on, 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 on food. Food is huge on the continent. Travel tourism, is, food tourism is really big for us. Um, African countries traveling from one country to the other is big right now. And then obviously the global diaspora as well. So that's one thing in terms of partnering with us. There's also the, you know, we're trying to create something around like, um, think the Met Gala, think about, you know, all the beautiful clothing. We're gonna do something like that mm -hmm. as well. So that's one way of partnering. But even if you don't wanna to come to the continent, there's many things you can do personally or as, you know, as an organization. So imagine, as I said in the beginning, when you're creating content around the continent, just think about what you're saying. But also in May, which is what we're calling Africa Month, be deliberate. Find the black people that you know who are cool, doing cool things. Yeah. If you don't know them, ask us. There's, yeah. Check on LinkedIn. There's resources everywhere you can find powerful black people doing powerful things and feature them. Feature the cool, creative, innovative things they're doing. Yeah. I think that's one way of helping. You know, I think that for too long in the media, we've been stuck in the same narrative and the same same management, the same way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to change. I think you being here today is fantastic. We need more people like you in, in media, and it's fantastic that you're here. And I'm very grateful for you. So thank you so much for talking oh, to me. Oh, thanks so much. Thank I you. appreciate being here. I, have, I am excited to be here. And I have to say, it's, I mean, I, I must say thanks to FIP for inviting me. I think Yulia, in terms of her leadership, as in like, well, how does she know me? She just, she found me um, through another. Um, she's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. And yeah. James for being open-minded and Cobus as well. So it's been great being here and I'm looking forward to being here again next year. And I'm obviously looking forward to having you guys join us in Kigali next year. Maybe we'll be a cry, I don't know, but join uh, us next year for Africa Month. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be on Phipps case to get me out of there, that's yay, for sure. Yeah, yeah. to see you there. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for your Thank time, you. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you.
Finally, we hear from Tanya Isla, Director of Global Licensing at Netflix USA, and Erica Lovett, Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Cartier. First of all, welcome both of you. You're a long way from home. We really appreciate the effort and the journey. I hope you're not going to be too tired with all this. I just want to kick off with a very big question, really, but what does diversity, Tanya, what does diversity mean to you? What it means to me, it means a lot of things, and the session that Eric and I just participated in, it is a, it's a, has to be a constant through line for me across everything an organization does. It means the people that I'm working with, both my colleagues and the people on my immediate team, making sure they are coming from a diverse set of backgrounds, gender, race, religion, uh, socioeconomic situations, yeah. education, um, that they are really truly showing up and are reflective of my company's values of diverse storytelling and authentic storytelling. It also um, means partnering with companies that share those values and can help support those values. So if having an opportunity to choose between you know two or three different companies and if one company is making commitments that are more aligned with our company values, I'm most likely going to want to engage with that company because they have something that not only supports a business case but can support our company values, which is incredibly important and incredibly important for me. Sure, thank you. And Eric, I'll come over to you. And obviously, if you want to add anything, please, yeah, please do. Yeah, no, of um, course, of course. I would just say I'm like, that's such a wonderful answer. And I was like, what am I going to say? It was quite fairly comprehensive. She didn't well, give you a lot. Yeah, I mean, I would just add that to me, diversity is embracing difference. Um, it's really looking at what is missing, who's not in the room, um, which you mentioned in the panel earlier today, Tanya. Um, and when we, when you notice what is, what is, who and what is missing, you do something about it. So that's my philosophy around diversity. That's lovely, actually. Mm-hmm. I love that because I think it's that classic thing: is if you can't see it, you can't be it. But mm-hmm. sometimes, if you don't see it, you forget about it. Yeah. So I guess part of your job is is being aware of what of who is being excluded because if they're so invisible you might not even notice them yeah just calling it out yeah Mm -hmm. which is really interesting i love that um erica if you could ask for me really uh, so what does commitment we talked about that and and one of the questions was about people pretending to be committed to Mm dni but what does commitment really look like i would say action and accountability so holding not just leadership, but everyone in the organization accountable for DEI, that means that when you're looking at how performance is measured, that diversity, inclusion, and equity are included in that performance measurement. Um, and it means that it's not a short-term um, strategy, right? That there are things that can be done in the short term to advance DEI within an organization, but real commitment is what does this organization look like 20 years from now? Right? What are we doing right now to impact that change that we'll see in 20 years? And how? And every year, how are we assessing um, what's working, what's not working, and mm-hmm. then making the, the, the changes in order to mm-hmm. move DEI forward? It's really interesting. So do you feel like what you guys are doing, Tana, do you kind of feel like what you're doing is setting the stage for future generations? Is that frustrating? Don't you want this to happen now? Well, I mean, nothing happens immediately. I tell my kids, you don't, you know, things don't happen immediately in the first sort of five minutes that you want them to. Um, if anything is, if something is worth it, it requires investment of mm-hmm. time, 
of resources, money, people, resources. So what's great is, and we talked about this earlier on our panel, there are immediate steps that organizations and individuals can take uh, to have immediate impact. Mm -hmm. But that immediacy, that short-term planning, also has to be backed by long-term planning and commitment. So Yeah, could you give me a couple of examples of something immediate, something that, you know, I can walk out of this room right now, what could I, what could I do, what can we do? Yeah, so we both talked about um, hiring panels and interviewing, um, and I think immediately what can be done is assessing who is on the interview panel and making sure that there is true diverse representation. So there's not all women, there's not all men, there's not all one type of person, that you truly have um, different perspectives, different voices who are able to assess a candidate, right? The other piece of that, um, in the interview process, what types of questions are you asking? This is something that can change, be changed immediately. Mm. Um, what um, are you asking questions that are truly inclusive, or are they very specific specific to um, one's education, um, one's background? Right. You want to make sure that you're not alienating anyone, mm. and that um, all of the questions are set up to really support the diversity of experiences and backgrounds in a candidate's profile. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because Yulia and I were discussing earlier. Obviously, Yulia, who's the first female chair at FIP in 100 years and we were still painfully aware that we're two white middle class women she actually comes from you know uh, she's Armenian background but still privileged background and here and I were chatting about diversity in it and I think that's the whole point isn't it of of getting the right people you can't create change if it's change is trying to happen by white middle class men often um and it's great. It, it is, you know, we're starting to see that change. And what I loved with your story about when you said you got your, your panel together and you were so proud of your panel, <laughs> and then you realised you missed off, missed off all the men. Part of me thinks, well, you know what? How many years have we missed off women? Yeah. You know what? So, so what? Part of me thinks that. But I do realise if we're trying to create diversity, you're, as, your, as your colleague rightly said, you have to. It has to be truly representative. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting, again, is the realisation that we all have biases. And the fact is you're trying to represent women of colour doesn't mean you don't have biases. Absolutely. And I think that's really interesting. And I, you know, I'd like to think I'm progressive, but I know I have biases because it's part of you know, my upbringing, mm -hmm. yeah. isn't it? It's part you're of... You're human. Yeah. <laughs> and, Earth. yeah, and we're kind of drawn to people we can relate to and understand. Mm -hmm. You know, you were saying you, know, you were the drinks... You say, were you the only black female there? Actually, there were a couple of us, but I found everyone yeah, because you, I sort of... Do you gravitate towards them? You locked eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a nod, it's like, I see you. Yeah. Because so often we're either not in the room or we're one of a hand, like, drinks last night, and it was a handful of people. So to see and acknowledge, like, oh, yeah, I see you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I, I, um, you know, I had a friend who's very tall, and they said that tall people do it. They acknowledge each other. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it, it, it's all happening, isn't it? Yeah. What, how do you think, how do you deal with your biases? I mentioned on the panel, I'm fortunate that I work, first time I've ever worked at a company that has a DNI team. Uh, and what that means as an employee, there are a number of programs just as an employee to make sure that I have a really great inclusive experience. As a people manager, I have had training <laughs> and yeah, okay. we have constant resources. So if I had an, in an, an issue, there's a team of people that are literally there to support DNI work at Netflix. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. even defining what inclusivity and diversity means, okay, here's your cheat sheet. How are you continuing to practice 
um, these these skills, so they constantly show up. So it's not something that goes into uh, a cabinet and gets locked away. So first time in my career ever that I've had the privilege of having an amazing, amazing resource mm. at my fingertips. Yeah, and Erica, you mentioned which I, which I thought was interesting about psychological safety, mm-hmm. and I think that's really true. And it's it's creating a space where you can feel like you have a voice and you can speak up. Like your colleague was okay to say as a man to a woman of color, where are the men? Yeah. And that was, you know, he called you out on it, and that was okay. And I think it's so important, isn't it? Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I actually, um, I think about my own experience as a head of diversity and inclusion for the first time at, you know, a, a legacy institution. It's, I think, when I think about my own bias, I rely on my colleagues to call me out, right? Or to call me in, as we say mm-hmm. now, to really respectfully and safely say, okay, Erica, I hear you, but like, here's why I disagree, right? And that's how, when you ask the question about mitigating your own bias, this is how I do it at Cardia, is I'm lucky enough to have a leadership team and colleagues within HR and outside of HR that um, feel comfortable with giving me feedback and saying like, we, we hear your perspective, but here's another way to look at something, right? Um, and to me, that's psychological safety, right? Very respectfully, letting someone know that there is another way to do yeah. things, to yes. think of things, and for me to not be defensive, right? Because just because I lead DE&I does not mean that I'm always right. And this is very important, that DE&I is not the responsibility of one person. Yes. It is a collective, <laughs> right? It's an organization, and it's and the, the, the DE&I leader is organizing, leading, managing, keeping things on track, right? But it really is the full leadership team who is taking that responsibility and making sure that everyone um, underneath them is also being held accountable. You talked about storytelling. And I think, again, when we're talking about this, sort of the biases, often it comes from just not knowing, right? So how important is storytelling? Um, and how can the media help change those stories? I mean, Tanya, I'll let you shape storytelling because Netflix <laughs> is doing it so well. well but what I, what I appreciate about our content that's on platform, and I've been a member of Netflix since 2000 or 1999, Um, what I love about the content that we create or license from other studios is it truly is diverse. So earlier, um, in the earlier sessions, talking about what are the perceptions when you think of K-content? What do you think? Do you think people in traditional Korean wear? Or do you think Squid Game, which is on Netflix? Do you think of BTS, another K-pop, right? You have so many points of reference. But when you think of Africa as a continent more broadly in that content, what do you think of? And it's starving children or water, like crisis after crisis. And what I love is we have content, Erica knows I'm talking your ear off about it, um, shows that as a black American are centered around really amazing, authentic African stories that are produced by African storytellers, the cast is all African. It's amazing. So as a black American to watch these stories and learn um, and to be curious about, wow, what does that, ex- what does my experience look like if I were you know, living in South Africa or living in Tanzania or living in Nigeria? So it's, it's opened up the door to rethinking how I think of the black experience someplace else. And I told Erica and a few other folks, um, watching one of our shows, Young, Rich, and African, which is amazing. A little shout out for that mm-hmm. show. Um, it's a very, you know, sort of Real Housewives-esque kind of a thing. So it's a very narrow look. But the cast comes from all different countries. 
And I never thought of a lot of these countries. I just never really thought of many of these countries outside of it's safari or it's probably scary. But then digging into the countries and the cultures um, and looking at pictures. Some of these countries, Rwanda, Uganda, are rich with wildlife, not just lions, but you know, gorillas and lush rainforest mm-hmm. and just truly beautiful, exquisite, painfully so. Mm-hmm. And as a mom, I have four kids showing wow. my kids these videos. They said, what are you watching? I said, this is Uganda. This is Rwanda. I'm like, that's Africa. Like, we thought it was just dry and dusty. Yeah. Like, it's a giant yeah. continent. It's yeah. diverse. Mm-hmm. So, again. Exactly. People refer to Africa as if it's a country. But no, and it's a continent with 50 some odd 50 yeah. or countries yeah. and uh, yeah. so many languages and cultures. Yeah. So, um, showing all of those stories, yeah. right? It's not starving children. It is everything from the real housewives <laughs> to just showing young yeah. professionals the same kind of content that we see in mainstream media. And I even hate using that word. These stories exist in every country in the world. Yeah. So how do you start to show those stories and not the same traditional, oh, it must be about impoverishment or a lack of resources. Um, it's the stories that we choose to tell. It's not fiction. This is real life. These things are happening just the way they're happening in America yeah. or Britain, right? Sure. It's Sure, yeah. And my final question is, we, you feel like we've talked about the fact that you feel like you're working for future generations. And, and I, my kind of reaction was that you want to change now. And you both seem incredibly kind of reasonable and rational which is the best way to approach it. I know anger doesn't often doesn't get doesn't get you very far. But do you feel frustrated at times? Do you feel angry at times? Or do you feel do you feel inspired by what you're doing? Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, there of course there are always moments of feeling like um, we could be moving faster, and not just for me within Cartier, but I think as a society, I think that there's so much more that we can be doing to support people of many different backgrounds. Um, we talked earlier in the panel about just all of the social, cultural, and political um, things that are happening around the world. Um, and you can see it in the way people show up to work, right? If you are you know, Ukrainian or Russian and there's, you know, there's so much happening right now, you might not be as tapped in or plugged into work that day because something's happening with your family yeah. you know, thousands of, of miles away. Um, that's real for many people, you know, that are facing many hardships across different communities. And so um, I, there are moments as a black American woman where I also have to take a step back and like breathe. And I'm really lucky to have a CEO who checks in on me when something happens. Mm. And it, I think that is rare. And I, I hear it more, happening more and more, but it's nice for someone to recognize that you are a human being and that something that's happening in the world can impact you know, how you show up every day. Um, so there are certain moments of frustrating and frustration and wanting things to move quicker, but I've also learned over time that sometimes when you move too quickly, you miss certain steps, right? Um, people are so focused on hitting certain goals, right? Being able to say that we accomplished this commitment and they sacrifice the journey, right? They sacrifice um, really taking the time mm. um, to do it the right way um, yeah. and to create a sustainable diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy and roadmap. And so, um, yes, there are the frustrations, but I'd much rather be frustrated in the short term to get to a better place yeah. in the long term. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I was going to say plus one. I was going to say <laughs> that. Like, but I can't agree more. It's 
when you rush, you lose that entire journey. And yes, there are things, again, we talked about this earlier, that can be done more immediately, more short term. But you have to be mindful that it's what it's a marathon, not it's a, right, not a not an immediate short term race. So you want to make sure that you're intentionally taking every step for the long term gain. Yeah, fantastic. It's been really great talking to you. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Likewise, thank, thank you. you. So that's it for our first Congress 22 Highlights podcast. We will also be bringing you highlights of presentations from the likes of Brian Morrissey, former editor and president at DigiDay, who now writes about sustainable modern media businesses for his own newsletter, The Rebooting, head of Axel Springer, Ralph Bucci, Will Page, the economist at Spotify, and Tom Armstrong, VP Global Advertising at The New York Times. Not bad, eh? So if you want more industry news and views, then sign up to our newsletter at fit.com. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like and subscribe.